shift into patient selection. Who is a very good ECT candidate? And what I mean by that is not just meeting the clinical indication for the treatment, but who is very likely going to have a very good and rapid response to the treatment. Then we'll discuss an overview of risks and benefits to the procedure. It's not a benign treatment. We use general anesthesia, so it does carry the requisite uh, risks in that context. We'll describe the uh, ECT series and what patients experience in that context. And most importantly, we'll talk about managing relapse. So it's this, there it is. Um, look, back up. I skipped several slides. I'm just getting, I'm getting used to the trackpad so as we speak. It's different. You'll be able to use these if that's easy. I think I'm going backwards. There we go. I'm a Mac person too, and I don't know what my issue is. All right, it's easier to do that. there we go. Um, and so the myths regarding ECT, uh, this morning I, to full disclosure, I was on a, uh, we have a treatment guardian in New Mexico. What a treatment guardian is, is a surrogate decision maker. And when the patient is decisionally incapable of making the, participating in the risk benefit discussion of the procedure, we'll take this discussion to the surrogate decision maker. And this is a very high functioning individual. And he of course brought up one flew over the cuckoo's nest in our conversation. That is a weekly occurrence. And it's very, uh, it kind of gives a, uh, significance to what that movie did to this treatment. It was an inappropriate use of the procedure. It wasn't based on any type of diagnostic or medical indication. It was to control uh, an eccentric individual and it was done for behavioral control. So we do not use ECT in that capacity. This was also uh, depicted without the use of general anesthesia. They're literally holding Jack Nicholson down to the table to administer the treatment. In 1969, they were not using ECT in that capacity. So it's a very barbaric portrayal of a very effective treatment. Yet the impact of that movie did have a lasting effect that I'm still struggling with. And I, it comes up no less than once, maybe once every other week. Uh, the quotes in front of you are from an FDA webpage. And the purpose of this Food and Drug Administration webpage was to declassify ECT devices from a stage three to a stage two. A very benign question, essentially leading to less regulation of ECT devices. So part of this was to open it up to a public forum where people could kind of have the opportunity to express their concerns or lack of concerns about this proposal. It turned out to be a, um, a public lashing out against ECT. Uh, it causes permanent brain damage. It doesn't have a lasting benefit. Uh, it's cruel and barbaric, and this is alive and well even within our own profession. Uh, I've had colleagues, uh, board-certified psychiatrists, refuse to refer to our service very good patients because they believe this treatment is barbaric and will be banned. Uh, unfortunately, this is a very much a life-saving treatment for the appropriate ECT indication, and in this one particular example that I'm bringing up, the family was able to think independently, do their own research, and initiate the referral <coughs> independent of the psychiatrist, and their daughter did exceptionally well. It was a 50-year-old patient, um, parents were in the 70s and 80s, but she, the patient did a full recovery thanks to ECT. Go ahead. I have a question, all right. So this is Matt with APD. So you mentioned about <clears throat> there's a lot of misinformation out there on ECT. 
So if someone was to, to do their own research, how you mentioned that family did, yes. is there certain places that you would suggest us refer someone to look at, or places that you would suggest us say stay away from like this website? It's the perfect segue to my next Okay, slide. look at that. Uh, this will probably be the first thing that comes up regarding what not to look at. There's a certain uh, religious organization, Scientology, and they have a watchdog group called the Citizens Commission of Human Rights. And they are very successful about perpetuating the stigma regarding ECT. Uh, so this will be one of the first things that comes up when you look about dangers regarding ECT and you'll be, um, your browser will go right to this um, Citizens Commission for Human Rights. It's a, it is very well done. Their propaganda is top notch. They were actually at University of New Mexico several years ago and they must have had a million dollar anti-psychiatry, anti-ECT exhibit. I, I went and saw it, it was at the Student Union building, it was free to the public. Uh, I walked out of there thinking, oh my God, this is horrible. It was really, really well done. And it was also a gross misbetrayal of what happens with ECT. So I would really recommend that if you're having a conversation with somebody that might really benefit from the procedure, really stick to academic sites. Uh, Johns Hopkins is very good. Uh, any type of, uh, we're, our University of New Mexico is very, um, has some like uh, patient handout material, but there are a lot of better uh, sites, but anything affiliated with an academic medical institution would be very good factual information. Uh, and I'm, my slides all, have all uh, documented like where this information is coming from, but the gentleman holding this line kind of documents where this information is coming from is this is humanrights.org slash ECT. And this is a gross misstatement. And we know this from both uh, pre-translational, what we mean by that is animal research done on electroconvulsive stimulations, as well as our own neuroimaging research that ECT actually creates new neurons. It actually enhances neuronal growth and reverses the effect of severe psychiatric disorders. So prior to doing the treatment, we can actually see the disease-related effects on the brain. After treatment, the brain resembles an individual without the psychiatric diagnosis contingent on the individual getting to remission. So ECT killing brain cells is there could be nothing further from the truth. So that's what we're up against. And this, this group has also found out where I live and they have reported my address to the city code folks. I've had to, to answer three queries about our property because of this. They've also handing out their business cards to my neighbors. They are very aggressive. They will do what's called fair game harassment to try and make my life difficult because I'm easily accessible as far as the you know ECT medical director at UNM. So I'm I'm fair game to kind of handle this, but it's, it's, it's worth it when you see the other side and how people benefit. A little bit about ECT history, and this is actually, uh, I think, incredibly fascinating. Uh, this Hungarian, back in the mid-1930s, uh, was incorrect. But what he was doing was looking at the brains of patients with epilepsy and comparing them to brains with patients with schizophrenia. And he noticed that the brains with people with epilepsy had more of a certain uh, brain cell called a glial cell. So he theorized that if he could make the patients have, patients with schizophrenia have seizures, he could then induce this type of cell, the glial cell, and cure schizophrenia. So he was completely wrong, but his, it worked. 
So it, this construct of biological antagonism, flawed as it may be, gave birth to, when you go back to the 1930s, we did not have any psychiatric medications. The only thing available was to put people in asylums and maybe talking about their mother in psychotherapy. That was it. That was the only available treatment. So inducing seizures was, was cathartic. It really helped a lot of people. The way they did this was to give substances and sit around and wait for folks to have a seizure. So we weren't using electricity initially. This came about several years later, 1939, 1941. Uh, Sir Letty is the guy's name, and he came up with the idea of using electricity to induce the seizures. And lo and behold, this was far more efficient in generating the seizures, and you didn't have to sit around and wait for somebody, you know, give them a noxious substance, wait 20, 30 minutes, maybe an hour until the patient seized. But you could deliver the electricity and instantaneously the patient would have a seizure. A little bit later, 1950s, this is when psychotropic drugs, clochromazine specifically, were introduced, as well as modified electroconvulsive therapy. This is the use of general anesthesia. So 1950 is about 20 years prior to one flew over the cuckoo's nest. You can kind of see the historical inaccuracy with that movie. But 1969, when Flew the Cuckoo's Nest launched the anti-psychiatry movement. And this really led to a backlash where people were uh, very reluctant to use ECT. And it really fell from use, but kind of rekindled a decade later in the 1980s when the appropriate diagnostic indications really were helping a lot of people. So people with treatment-resistant depression, or severe psychotic depression were really benefited from it. So it got, ECT went through this period of um, less use, but I would argue it actually became more refined during this time period. In the 2000s, the ECT uh, research was really focused on minimizing side effects, specifically cognition, which is still a problem today. We're doing a research on this topic. And most recently, we're getting into a lot of ECT neuroimaging investigations, and we participate in these. So essentially, we're looking at a, a dramatic change in a patient's level of functioning from profoundly depressed, suicidal, to the point that they're not eating, drinking fluids, to full recovery within four weeks. So it's a dramatic improvement in certain individuals. And during that time, from really suffering to complete remission of symptoms, the brain has to undergo a dramatic transformation. That's exactly what we're trying to capture with our uh, imaging research. So this brings us to who really benefits from ECT. Uh, the classic case would be a catatonic individual. And what I mean by catatonia is somebody who's not speaking, they're not eating, they're not drinking, and they have a psychomotor component. The characteristic waxy flexibility is where you can put folks in these kind of bizarre postures and they'll stay stuck in these, um, these uh, movements or lack of movement for an indefinite period of time. It's probably more common to see folks with just minimal movement, what we call severe psychomotor retardation. They won't really talk much. Uh, they might talk with one or one word answers and this after significant latencies. The other really good use of ECT is with psychotic depression. And this is, for whatever reason, reasons we don't really understand, it really affects the elderly a little bit more. So folks in the 60s would be kind of most, um, most prone to this type of manifestation with the depressed episode that gets so severe, people develop delusions. The delusion might be something like guilt, 
you know, what you did was worse than Hitler and the Holocaust, for example, and therefore you deserve to die. The other common delusional manifestation is a somatic delusion. The body stops working. I can't eat a paper-thin wafer because I'm, I have stool up into my mouth. That would be another example. Mania is another uh, good ECT indication, and often this comes after folks have tried several medications and it's really ineffective. Usually these folks are in an inpatient setting and haven't responded to first or second line medications, and they're very disruptive to staff and sometimes physically aggressive. Severe anorexia is another good indication. I'm not talking about anorexia nervosa. I'm talking about the anorexia or loss of appetite related to a depressed episode. And often these patients come to our attention because they're going to the surgery service because they're gonna get a feeding tube implanted in their stomach just to maintain some type of caloric intake. It's, they're that malnourished, and it's essentially um, the time is such that we really need to do something rapidly and definitively. We can consider this when medical reasons. Uh, pregnancy is a good example, especially a pregnant patient with mania or bipolar diagnosis. A lot of the drugs are potentially pretty harmful to the fetus. They're what we call teratogenic. So that is where ECT can have a very good and safe indication. The anesthetic drugs are far safer than the classic use of mood stabilizers in this context. And another last but very important reason to consider ECT is if a patient has had a good past response to ECT. Best predictor of a future response is a past response. Secondary uses of ECT are also uh, pretty common, but these are also associated with maybe a little bit more modest expectation of benefit. ECT definitely doesn't work with everybody. And if somebody comes to us with a depressed episode that's been years in duration, hasn't responded to a number of different medications, psychotherapy, then yes, we can consider ECT, but our job in the ECT consultation is to give the, um, the appropriate expectation of benefit. You know, maybe this won't have the robust response we're looking at with the psychotic depression, but maybe we should still proceed with the treatment. Uh, intolerance to medication side effects, this is definitely a, an indication, but I would say a less favorable indication when the patient cannot tolerate meds. Uh, because sometimes when we do the ECT series, we come back to medications to help people stay well and minimize the risk of relapse. So a lot of times, though, when people, say, in the case of depression, get through an ECT series and actually start doing better, they become more tolerant to do another antidepressant trial that was previously associated with pretty bad side effects. And of course, the deterioration in psychiatric condition, and this is really related to our different diagnoses. Uh, the diagnostic indications would be major depressive disorder. It could be a single episode if it's of adequate acuity, recurrent, but it has to be severe. We don't do this for mild or moderate depression. Bipolar disorder, it can be either a manic, mixed, or depressed episode. And lastly, our psychotic disorder, schizoaffective or schizophrenia. So these are the common diagnostic indications for ECT. In very rare cases, we can go off the diagnostic um, pathway, but that really requires us to be very careful. But this is the most common reasons diagnostically for us to consider ECT. The caveat is the acuity has to be there to allow us to uh, have the justification to move forward with anesthesia. In the context of major depressive disorder, this is um, 
this is a, a meta-analysis, and the big take-home here is the expected response given this diagnosis. This is uh, effect sizes, and we're looking at an effect size of around 0.8, that's a very large effect size. The interpretation of all this plot and that red box at the end is essentially a 70 to maybe an 80% response rate with the appropriate patient. You compare this with medications, somebody really depressed, um, we're looking at a medication trial, there might be a 35% estimated response rate to an antidepressant trial. ECT is orders of magnitude greater. Again, not for everybody, but for the right patient. And this is who the right patient might be. This is a stronger response predictors. This is all based on clinical and demographic features. This is all based on two different meta-analyses. The duration of episode is a key variable. If you're looking at somebody, and we always start the ECT consultation in a similar way, like let me know when the depression started. And if the depression started, say, with a date within the last two years, that's a very favorable response. A more worrisome response is for somebody to say, I've never not been depressed. And they'll start talking about childhood events or traumas that then perpetuated this very chronic, unremitting depression with a lot of treatment resistance. This is somebody that may not respond to ECT. It doesn't mean we don't move forward, but we do our job about managing expectations about what this patient can expect from ECT. We already discussed the optimal age, about 65 years of age. A lot of these folks have you know, medical comorbidities, and so that does alter the risk-benefit ratio. But a lot of times this, um, what we call a melancholic type of depression manifests in the mid-60s or maybe early 70s, as well as the psychotic features. The other factors have a little bit less of a probability of a response. We flip it though to make sure not the predictive factors, but make sure that we're using ECT appropriately. And you can't, my apologies, can't really see the scale, but it's essentially three items in the scale that we always keep in mind when we're doing an ECT consultation with a depressed patient. First of all, we wanna make sure that the severity of depression is very acute. Again, we don't do this for mild or moderate depression. We use uh, systematic depression rating scales. Our minimum is a 21, which is a very severe depressed episode in this particular scale. We also look for a family history. If um, grandparents or um, aunts, uncles had history of suicide, past response to ECT, or history of a mood disorder, that's a very favorable uh, prognostic factor it lets us know we're using ECT appropriately. And then lastly, it's the episodic nature of depression. The case that I just gave you about the person who says, I've never not been depressed, goes back to childhood to talk about the onset, that would be uh, lacking that episodic nature of depression. And so the fact that people can say, hey, my depression began six months ago, this is my third episode, those are very good prognostic signs and associated with a very good use of ECT. Adverse effects predominantly come from the use of general anesthesia. Uh, because we're using general anesthesia, there is a risk of mortality. So one in 50,000. In the last uh, decade that I've been doing ECT, uh, we have had uh, two cases, two mortality, two cases of death associated, maybe a little bit peripherally with our treatments. And that's really something that we want to look back on and make sure that we were using ECT appropriately. Again, if it's mild or moderate depression, that just doesn't make sense. 
So we really try and keep that in check and inform patients or the decision maker about that risk. There are cardiovascular complications. If somebody has coronary artery disease, past history of arrhythmia or heart attacks, they're at increased risk. Because one thing that we look for for an effective ECT treatment is a little bit of a bump in heart rate. Heart rate beats a little bit faster, blood pressure goes up for a minute or two, and that puts a little bit of a cardiac strain. We do this in the post-anesthesia care unit. Every patient is hooked up to a cardiac monitor the entire time. But we do need to counsel patients accordingly. If they do have coronary artery disease, if they do have, say, a pacemaker, they're not necessarily contraindications, but we might get cardiology involved just to make sure that we're minimizing the risk to the best of our abilities. Folks can't eat or drink prior to the treatment for about eight hours. And the reason that we don't want anything in the stomach is that we give medicine that helps all the muscles relax and we don't want stomach contents going into the lungs causes an aspiration medical emergency. So, you said eight hours before and after, or just before? I'm sorry, eight, uh, eight hours before the treatment. Okay. So nothing by mouth, uh, maybe a little sip of water up until two hours prior, but the less, uh, less contents in the stomach, the better. Okay. Uh, one of the other risks is related to the timing of the medicines we use. Uh, one of the medicines we use, first one we use is a medicine that helps the patient go completely asleep. So it's a general anesthetic. The next medicine is a paralytic, and that helps all the muscles relax, including the gastrointestinal tract. So that's what could lead to the aspiration. What we, the correct order is for patients to regain control of their breathing when the paralytic wears off and then to wake up. It doesn't always happen. So sometimes folks wake up and they're aware that their breathing is not under their own control and it causes a lot of distress. We call that residual paralysis. It's an easy fix, but it can make folks very anxious to subsequent treatments. Headache, muscle soreness, nausea, all very common, and we do our best to eliminate that with preventive medication prior to each treatment. And lastly, cognitive side effects. That's the one you're gonna, if, you, if anybody does their own research on ECT, that's what's gonna come up. People have cited that as evidence of brain damage, and that's incorrect because it is transient. This slide looks at a bunch of different cognitive domains. Um, that red box highlights what we call effect sizes. Again, point eight is pretty large. This is immediately after ECT. This meta-analysis also tracked people about two to four weeks after ECT, and what they saw is a complete resolution of all of this cognitive impairment. So yes, ECT-mediated neurocognitive impairment can happen, but it is transient. It's not permanent and it is not evidence of brain damage. The reciprocal of this is that we can get patients to, do, to re respond to ECT without the cognitive impairment. This is a function of our parameters, and I'll talk about this in just a second. But this is uh, the same slide done from a very um, eloquent patient who is basically describing the paradox. She actually responded to ECT. This is about three months, written three months after her ECT series. And she is essentially lamenting the possibility of coming back for additional treatments. And she brought up this paradox that if she comes back for ECT treatments, she might get more cognitive impairment and then subsequently then be unable to work despite the fact that ECT was effective with her depression. She unfortunately um, completed suicide. So this is um, a very bad outcome, but it also is a, basically a, I think a very 
well-stated um, illustration of how severe and incapacitating the cognitive impairment can be with ECT. And this might affect some people that are really reluctant then to come back and see us, despite the fact they had a good response to ECT. That's one more question. So if you're saying that it's transient, transient, how long before that kicks back to what it was? So the, the, the combined studies, like we're looking at all the different cognitive ECT studies, we're looking at about a two to four week time period for complete resolution. She didn't wait two to four weeks? Or? That's variable. So two to four okay. weeks is expected, and this unfortunately was months afterwards, and she's still having some. So this was a, uh, she required a type of treatment that is going to segue into kind of how we minimize this and with our clinical algorithm. But there are ways that we can minimize the cognitive risk. Uh, so a month is kind of how we counsel people ahead of time to kind of, if they do have it, it should resolve within a month. But there is some variability. Some of this variability is to how we do ECT. And we have an algorithm in place that we start with a more memory-friendly type of treatment. And if folks aren't responding, then we switch things up and go into the more effective but more cognitively impairing treatment. And if we have to do a large number of treatments, that can really prolong the effect of the cognitive impairment. This is part of the ECT consultation. So we have to receive a referral from the patient's primary psychiatrist. This might be done from the inpatient setting, but we don't generate our own referrals. We have to essentially be the second assessment about agreement with the referring provider regarding the diagnostic and clinical indications for ECT. We rely on the outpatient provider's medical records. Uh, we interview the patient. We really want family to be present during those interviews because a lot of this interview is also a lot of psychoeducation. We then assess the ability for decisional capacity. And this is probably more problematic uh, on the inpatient unit. A lot of folks, as they get very sick, are not able to tell us, essentially, this is all from my depressed episode. Like my feelings of guilt or my body not working is from depression. I understand this treatment might make me better. So that would be a very informed patient. But typically, they're not going to attribute any of their declining functioning to depression, and they're not going to be interested in ECT treatment. So this would be the case where we have to get a surrogate decision maker, which is a court-appointed person who helps with mental health decisions and we would steer that risk-benefit discussion to them. We would still provide the patient with a lot of psychoeducation and do our best to get them to assent to the procedure. When we're doing these consultations on an outpatient basis, we can always consider an inpatient ECT start to make sure the patient's safe. We do work with anesthesia prior to minimize risk, and we do lab work, electrocardiogram, where we talk about the cardiology consultation if it's indicated. Uh, we then go back and have the conversation with the person who's referring us the patient. And this is about concurrent and post-ECT pharmacotherapy. And at this point, we're already starting to discuss the possibility that ECT may not work. It's always good to have that discussion before you start, even if this is a very good candidate. We always want to think about, well, oh, there might be that 20, 30% that ECTs might, might not work. What are we going to do medication-wise? Because as you can imagine, folks that don't respond to ECT, there is a period of hopelessness and so forth that their treatment resistant continues, but we want to have that plan in place and quickly transition care as quickly as we can. 
Sir, will you go over disqualifiers or things that would steer you away from it later if you want to understand? It's a reciprocal, a lot of what we, we discussed. Okay. So we talked about acuity, we talked about um, episodic uh, nature of the depression. Uh, and if somebody has mild to moderate, we're, we're going to counsel them otherwise. Personality disorders, a comorbid personality disorder, if your personality disorder, say borderline personality disorder, you could still benefit from the procedure. You might have an additional depression. But the complicating thing is it's seldom going to be life-changing. We need to embed the ECT treatment with other aspects of the treatment plan, like dialectical behavior therapy, and really think outside the box about how we can best help this individual. From a medical perspective, there's really only two absolute contraindications to doing ECT. One is a space-occupying lesion in the brain, and that's like if you have, say, a brain cancer or a lesion of sorts, that there is going to be an increased intracranial pressure as we do the treatment, and that could be associated, of course, with death. We would, that would be a no-go with ECT. We have done ECT with people with devices, deep brain stimulators, vagal nerve stimulators, et cetera, and have done very well with ECT. Uh, the other absolute contraindication is a heart attack or myocardial infarction within six weeks. It's just too soon. And we have to uh, really give the patient requisite time, cardiac rehab, before we even remotely consider ECT. We tend to extend that a little bit. So somebody with any type of heart attack, we're going to be a little bit more reluctant about ECT. We really want to get cardiology involved. And we're looking at maybe a suboptimal risk-benefit ratio in some of those cases. So it's a bit of a judgment call outside of those absolute contraindications. I have a question on this as well. This is Matt here at the APD. What if an individual wants ECT? So that it's not, let's say they have a psychiatrist or their family practice manages their depression and they're like, hey, I read about this and this is what I want. Can they self-refer? Cannot self-refer. Uh, so the, the question about, this is a very challenging clinical uh, situation. And we, we see this uh, not infrequently on the outpatient setting where the patient has done their own research uh, about these dramatic response rates. They might have a mild to moderate depression, uh, and they'll call us. And so we won't even do the ECT consultation if the patient tries to self-refer. We'll steer them to the appropriate provider, and if the appropriate provider then agrees, that kind of puts it back on us to help manage expectations. Because a lot of times, I brought up the use of the uh, personality disorder, and a lot of times, the hope of a quick fix with somebody with a personality disorder is really hard to manage because we know and the referring provider might know and they might say something in the referral to us like it's the patient's request to come to ECT. I'm just helping facilitate that. You have to kind of help with this management of the anticipated benefits of the procedure. So it's a really challenging uh, clinical construct. Very seldom will we absolutely refuse to move forward with ECT in this context, but occasionally we will have to, just because maybe the patient has unrealistic expectations, um, and it just doesn't make sense. They haven't tried you know, different medications. They don't have the tolerable side effects. They just want this quick fix. So sometimes we will steer them back to the provider and really recommend um, certain medication or a number of medication trials before reconsidering ECT. When we do that, we're not really saying no, we're saying, hey, try this first. And it might be you know, a six month time period before we're then eligible to see that patient again. 
And often by the time the patient comes back for the second or maybe in some cases third assessment, there's usually a worsening of the depression in this case that will probably move forward with ECT. And that's kind of how we manage that. But it's a very challenging clinical situation. Uh, this is the um, illustration of our segue into different types of parameters. And this is a very large study. And the y-axis here is your depression rating scale. Uh, 35 is really high. We won't move forward with ECT until somebody's at a 21. It's the Hamilton rating um, severity of depression. Visit is number of ECT treatments. So we do ECT three times a week. An average is about 12 treatments for an ECT series. We really try and individualize that number, but for the ECT consultation, we tell folks and care partners that, hey, it's about four weeks, 12 treatments to get through an ECT series. It really helps from a planning perspective. What you can see is the dotted hash marks at the end. There are the bitemporal treatments. And if you can, yeah, I got a cursor. This is this type of electro placement. Same thing is happening on the other side of the, the skull. This is how the electricity is administered. It's essentially a whole brain stimulation. And the cursor right here at the bottom, you see this little disassociation where the bitemporal patients are actually responding a little bit faster. And that's really consistent with our clinical experience. So a lot of folks will ask, well, why don't you just start with bitemporal? Bitemporal is also the one associated with the most cognitive risk. So our algorithm is to start with this right unilateral placement. And this is applicable for a right-handed individual. So 95% probability that they're going to be left dominant. So we put the electric stimulation on the non-dominant hemisphere, and that's how we minimize the cognitive risk. We still induce a generalized seizure, but there is a little bit of a disassociation between the electric stimulation and seizure activity. Bifrontal is another commonly used type of electroplacement. We opt to not do that just to simplify our clinical algorithm. And you just you want to, you can only make really, in my opinion, one significant change during the ECT series. So we start right unilateral and go to bitemporal. Uh, this is what the ECT electrical waveform uh, looks like. And it's a it's an alternating current. It goes back and forth between those two different types of electroplacements. Uh, this is way more than anybody needs to know. My only point in bringing this up is that these different parameters affect not only the efficacy of the treatment, but also the cognitive risk. And that's summarized right here. When we look at our usual starting point with a right unilateral ultra brief, is arguably the least effective type of treatment. The bitemporal brief pulse width is the most effective. But you can see how they sit on opposite sides of this efficacy cognitive side effect continuum. So we start right unilateral ultra brief, they don't respond after six treatments, then we switch to a bitemporal. Uh, to beat the bunch, people are going to ask about the left handed individual. Uh, the laterality is such that it's about 50 50. So two different opportunities. We deal with this in the ECT consultation. We either suggest we could go to a bitemporal just you know have to deal with the cognitive risk or the other possibility is to do both a right and a left sided treatment and the treatment associated with the longer recovery is the stimulation of the dominant hemisphere and then we of course steer the treatment to the non-dominant hemisphere so that's the other workaround the endpoints with ECT include six bitemporal treatments so that would be a adequate dose and trial of ECT 
If the patient does not respond after six of those bitemporal treatments, that does represent an adequate ECT trial. We'd be in a position to discuss moving on to uh, next step medications or alternative treatments in that context. The other reason to stop ECT is a clinical plateau. Maybe there is an initial improvement in the subsequent treatments, we're just not seeing it anymore, and the patient tends to have a little bit of a leveling off of the improvement. So that would be another, I would say, a week of no further improvement would be another reason to stop the ECT series. And the last reason is our best reason. That would be full remission of symptoms, which is more often than not our, for a depressed episode, the more common reason to stop ECT. When we finish ECT, our work isn't done because if we don't do anything, it's a guaranteed relapse. So we counsel folks ahead of time to, we're gonna have to revisit medications. And even if it was intolerable, we hope that the improvement in the depression will help them tolerate medications and manage side effects. The best studied medications are venlafaxine or Effexor, or an older tricyclic antidepressant called nortriptyline. We can even consider low-dose lithium to help with the ECT response in this context. Non-response, then we're kind of thinking already about novel medicines, monoamine oxidase inhibitors, medicines like Pramipexil that are a little bit relatively unstudied or maybe candidates we would consider in this case. But the illustration is here, if we don't do anything, this would be the placebo-like survival curve. And what this is, is the community, the y-axis is the cumulative probability of remaining well or relapse is the reciprocal. And this is time from the ECT series. The placebo is at the very bottom there. This is a survival curve. What you're looking at, at for 16 weeks, that the folks on no ECT, no medications, 80% of them have all relapsed within 16 weeks. The folks on a, on a nortriptyline, the older tricyclic antidepressant, they have a 50% probability of relapse. The folks on nortriptyline plus lithium, we're already reducing that down to about a 25% probability of relapse. So this is an older study, 2001. This is a more recent study. This is regarding what we call uh, rescue treatments. And this is our preferred algorithm. This is as of 2016. And we counsel folks accordingly that even if they start inpatient ECT, we want them to do at least four weekly treatments on an outpatient basis. And then we are available for them in the context of relapse. We're very fortunate we have an inpatient as well as a very large outpatient ECT series. We very seldom, if ever, have a meaningful wait list. So I have a question. <clears throat> this is an activity piece. So someone's inpatient, they get released, and your recommendation is a treatment a week for four weeks? Yes. Can people, if they have a job, go back to work the following day? Yes. Okay. And uh, at this point, depression's gone. Uh, we have patients, this is a little bit beyond our, our discussion today, but there is this, uh, people get maintenance ECT. And that's when, uh, you know, repeated relapse with different medication trials, they might come in once, uh, once a month for a single treatment. Some of these individuals are just so used to how the ECT affects them, they go off to work. Okay. They can't drive after getting an ECT treatment to general anesthesia, but they might work from home and they might just function quite well after a treatment. It's highly variable. Starting ECT though, you know, patients are still depressed. They're getting kind of a, you know, a stimulation, general anesthesia, everything's new. Most of the time we tell people just to really trying to take it easy on their ECT days. But at this point, if we're doing continuation ECT, these four weekly treatments, 
This means by definition, they either have a robust response when they're in remission, and uh, yeah, the afternoon is open to them, driving being the notable exception. But the following day then, all the following. Okay. Yeah, yeah. Uh, so the four weekly treatments then segues into rescue treatments. In the event of a relapse where maybe two or three days of uh, worsening depression symptoms, and this is actually never ambiguous. Uh, the patients can give us a call and we get them into the next available treatment, usually the next day. And it's really a matter of urgency because as we know, the biggest risk factor for suicide is having a depressed episode, but it's more about relapse. And that's, that's a really uh, emergent situation. We've lost patients in this capacity when we didn't have the luxury of um, space available and we actually saw patients relapse and we were unable to get them into treatment quickly enough. And that led to, unfortunately, completed suicides. So the ability to get people in the next two or three days is uh, definitely a huge benefit and patients really do take advantage of that. And that really helps them stay well, helps the brain get used to a new normal, a non-depressed normal. And I talked about the ECT series was about 12 treatments. So what we're looking at with these bubbles here, these are, these are weeks after the ECT series, and these are folks who all started demonstrating symptoms. And the bigger circles are indicative of three treatments. The smaller circles are indicative of a single treatment. So essentially these folks got a single treatment, a lot of these folks, and instantly regained the benefit. The brain is remarkably treatment responsive during this phase of treatment. They're also taking medicines in this folks. In this case, the patients were taking Velofaxine plus lithium, and then we're adding ECT rescue treatments to this algorithm, and these investigators were able to reduce the relapse risk to about 10%. Wow. So it really did show it's a, um, a remarkable improvement as far as the stability. And once we get past six months, the idea is that we have enough momentum there that this is, what, this is the way the brain is used to being right now, and they're gonna likely have less, less risk of relapse. Uh, just two slides on research that we're doing here. We're studying the function of amplitude. We're doing e-field modeling. What you're looking at here is an individual who did a MRI prior to ECT. We segment the brain into the different compartments based on tissue type, gray, white matter, cerebral spinal fluid. And then we model what a single pulse of electricity looks like in the brain. And what this looks like is the function of the different electrode placements. You can see how different this is with bifrontal, by temporal, it's essentially whole brain stimulation, and then we get into the right unilateral where you're only seeing that right dominant hemisphere. Uh, so the cognitive impairment does seem to be a function of the degree of electric stimulation of the brain. And lastly, last slide, we're looking at the way we track the seizure activity, and this is just a two-channel EEG recording. This is about a 40-second seizure. What you're looking at from here to here is the high amplitude temporally coherent. This is one channel, this is the other channel, seizure activity, and that's how we make a lot of our clinical decision agents. We know from our own research and others that inducing the seizure it is not really associated with clinically effective treatment. So it goes beyond that, and what we're doing is a 24-channel EG acquisition. And just to orient you on this slide, this is one channel would be like, for example, right here. That, that cursor, and that would be represented right here. The dither, 
that thickening of the line, that's seizure activity. So you're seeing it from a very different magnitude as opposed to this portrayal. This is the, the uh, vertical line is stem delivery. What we're looking at is this peak right here, about 30 seconds to a minute after seizure activity. You see these, this bump in waveforms? That's actually massive. You think this is consistent with a brain tsunami. Uh, in other words, migraine pathophysiology, and this is orders of magnitude greater than seizure activity. So mechanistically, this might explain how ECT works, but because we are using these rather crude devices, not we at UNM, but the field, uh, people are, can't see the forest through the trees unless they deliberately look at these low frequency changes. So we think that the ECT response might be related to this entity, this construct called spreading depression or brain tsunamis. So um, that could be a bit of a game changer how we do ECT. What is that picture of? Oh, the top one right here? Yes. Uh, so this is our, our ECT nurse, Sleep Ball, and he's modeling our EEG cap. So this is uh, all a bunch of different electrodes on the skull that's picking up the electric activity. This is the ECT handle. That's how the stimulus is being delivered. We're not, of course, going to give him the stimulation. He's just modeling it. We had to buy this $1,000 cap and cut holes in it to fit the handle into the, into the cap. Wait, so literally someone's holding the handle for it. That's exactly right. Oh, I thought you guys put something on. I didn't realize someone actually had to hold it. Yeah, we, we, there is a mechanism that you can use a device that kind of puts the ECT handles directly on the skull, like a, a, a contraction. This gives us a little bit more flexibility, and um, we have a person, that's, his, that's what Lee Paul does during our, our treatments, is he actually uh, holds the ECT handles in the appropriate location while we deliver the stimulus. So that's, that's what it looks like, minus the cap. Like, this is just for research applications and for research. People have consented to our research protocol. Uh, this is uh, kind of the requirement for our outpatient ECT service. This is our outpatient ECT team. This is where we do ECT. This is a post-anesthesia care unit. This is Mary Barge Hendricks. She's our ECT nurse right there. Uh, the Scientologists, when they came to look over my fence, I think they were convinced I was doing this in my garage. I'm not. We do this in a procedural setting. It's a very modern setting. It requires a big team of individuals, and we have a lot of very positive patient feedback not only in them feeling better, but just on the process itself. And we're very fortunate to have a very good team to do this work.